HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, your live podcast once a week of news for young farmers by young farmers. And today we're interviewing Erica Fernay from Shelter Belt Farm in Caroline, New York, just next to Ithaca. Hello, Erica. Hi, Severin. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing over there? How's the weather? Oh, it's uh, kind of a typical fall day, sort of breezy and dark um, and it's supposed to be quite wet, but we haven't really seen too much of that yet. And so what have you got on the docket for this week? I know we've been raising lots of the birds, um, but what's your, your current schedule? Um, I'm hoping this week to be picking up our first batch of this year's pork from a brand-new USDA butcher that opened uh, north of here. And we're really excited to see how that goes because we hope that this will be a long-term, beautiful, budding relationship with a butcher, which um, if you're raising livestock is a really important thing to have. Um, And we are just still fattening up those turkeys and taking orders for them and uh, kind of starting some of our winter planning a little bit early. We have some big decisions to make for next year. So... So this planning part is going to be, I think, a major focus of our talking today because you are a holistic management uh, professional and a professional in small farms program and overqualified to be a planner. Uh, <laughs> is that true? Is, is anyone overqualified to be a planner? <laughs> well, anyway, adequately qualified. Um, could you explain a little bit how you um, have have proceeded to have your farm and and how that arose from your goals and how you managed to do the farming and have other careers. 
Yes. I mean, we'll um, start with how did you start? Well, um, let's see. Gosh, my entrance into farming was serendipitous, I think. Um, I was, it was back when I was a student at Cornell, and I was newly vegetarian at the time, and I was uh, a biology major and doing some wetland research at a lab here in Ithaca. And the student-run farm at Cornell is called Dillman Hill, and that was right next door to the lab. And they were offering a program where if you volunteered for two hours a week on their farm, you could take home a big bag of organic produce every week. And um, it was, you know, it was really easy for me since I was already working next door. I didn't know a vegetable from a weed when I first started there, um, but they trained me and I learned quickly, and it was fabulous, and I got completely and totally hooked just um, getting my hands dirty and being outside and growing f- good food for people. And I realized that throughout college I had been really interested in the intersection of, of communities and people with their environment, and agriculture is just sort of the perfect laboratory for exploring that relationship. So ever since then, that was 1990, uh, 1997, ever since then I've had a farm in my life in some form or another um, and it wasn't until probably just eight years ago or so that my husband and I realized that we wanted to start our own farm, that we, we didn't just want a homestead. We didn't just want to work on other people's farms. And this was shortly after I had started about 10 years ago. I started the holistic management training, and holistic management is all about decision-making, and it encourages you to think to think really deeply, to ask yourself hard questions about what is it that you love, what makes you happy, what do you want to do in this world, what do you want to create, what do you want your life to be like, how do you want to use the power that all of us have to make decisions, what do we want to use those decisions to do. And so through multiple conversations with my husband Craig and several drafts of our own personal holistic goal, it became really clear that we didn't just want to homestead, we wanted to grow food and sell it to people and feed our community. And so uh, then there was a long process after that of figuring out where were we going to be and how were we going to get access to land and what were we going to raise and and all of that stuff. So throughout all of that, our holistic goal and the decision-making process that holistic management provides has guided all of our decisions. And you started out, as you say, homesteading and working You were working full-time for the small farms at that point, were you not? Yeah, we didn't have any children then. Um, (laughs) And so I was was working full-time, and we were raising. We had a a two-and-a-half-acre property and an old farmhouse. It was the first home that we've ever bought. And um, we raised all of our meat, vegetables, mushrooms, um, and berries, basically, on on that property. And spent a lot of time doing it and just that's part of, you know, we love doing it, but it started to feel like, well, gosh, if we're going to put this much time into it, maybe we should try to make it more than just a hobby and make it a business, Um, which is a leap that I I think a lot of people are interested in making, but it's not as natural as you'd think because when you're homesteading, you don't have to worry about um, your enterprise budgets too much and you don't have to worry about profit or efficiency or scale. And so those are some of the tough questions that we've been grappling with since we've made the the transition into commercial farming. 
And you made the transition into farming and into, you have now two babies, or one, sorry, one of them is not a baby anymore. <laughs> right. We have a five-year-old who just started kindergarten this year, and then we have a 10-month-old little boy. Um, and then you had to figure out land access. Do you want to talk about that process and, and uh, offer the model that you found for others to consider? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure that our model, I mean, maybe our process, our method of finding land might be a good model for other folks, but um, we, we were particularly lucky in our land search in that Craig's parents decided early on that they wanted to move down here and be closer to us. They lived in the Syracuse area, so about an hour and a half north of Ithaca. Um, they wanted to be closer to us as we were starting our family, and they were living in the suburbs and wanted to live more rurally, and they were retiring. So they had the financial assets to be able to buy a piece of land, and that's what we lacked, and that's what so many new farmers lack. Um, so we were very lucky in partnering with them and in having their support for our vision. But the process that we went through, it took us three years to find land. And basically when we bought our house outside of Ithaca, we fell in love with the community out here. We're in a community called Brooktondale or the town of Caroline. And it is, it's just so wonderful. The landscape is really appealing. It's very rolling hills and um, gorgeous valleys and lots of state forest and really great people. And we wanted to stay close to that community of people, which then severely limited our land options. So we started out with, you know, looking at real estate listings and things like that, and that wasn't getting us anywhere. And then we partnered with a group of friends who all had a similar vision to us, and our idea was to buy a really large chunk of land, you know, upwards of 90 acres or so, and then um, build kind of a mini intentional community. So we would divide the land up along, you know, typical lines, like everyone would have their own parcel, but then we would cluster our homes and maybe share a driveway, and they would lease their land to Craig and I to farm. So we would farm whatever we owned as well as everybody else's land. Um, and we, we looked at lots of pieces of land. We approached local farmers who owned lots of land, and we made several purchase offers together, and that just never, that never worked out. So... Eventually, what we ended up doing was driving around and identifying parcels that we really liked and going down to the tax office, the county tax clerk, um, and finding out who owned those pieces of land. And then we crafted a letter that laid out our vision and our dream and what we were trying to do and let people know that we were interested in their land or if they happened to know other landowners who might be interested in selling or leasing land and we let them know that we were going to call them. So then we didn't have to make cold calls. We had warned them with the letter. And then when we did call people, we got generally really wonderful responses. Um, most people had no interest in selling or leasing land to us, but they were at least really kind and supportive. And then finally we hit upon one person who was just about to subdivide her land into five-acre parcels and sell it off. And we convinced her to keep it as a single piece of land at 28 acres and sell it to us. And the, the only sad part is that it didn't work out to buy land with all the other folks who we had been hoping to. Everybody in the end went off in their separate directions and bought their own pieces of land. But we are living here with Craig's parents, so we do at least have the multi-generational aspect to our farm. Yeah, this, the group purchase thing is very interesting. Uh, 
there's a wonderful woman who's been in our orbit in Hudson who has been trying a similar thing to organize a group purchase, and mm-hmm. she's gone around and looked at the literature and, you know, read this and read that and talked to lawyers and everything, and then she, in the end, she's applying for a fair grant to basically make a, a brochure or a, a pamphlet to talk about all the different examples and how to approach it, because it's pretty challenging, and our our tax rules in this country don't necessarily support group purchase. Yeah. And yet um, it would be a way that to That was make... a tangent. I apologize. No, no, but that's anyway, okay. I mean, I think also it is... that question. Um, <laughs> watch this space, because she said she would publish it on the Greenhorn blog when she's finished, which may take a year. So, hmm. so then you got your farm, and you built the house, and you spent all the time thinking it all through and planning and having babies and, um, and supporting other beginning farmers throughout the Northeast, not only in New York, but throughout the Northeast through the Beginning Farmer Program. Um, and then what was the vision for the farm, and how did the, how were you de- deciding on which land? Was that already based on knowing what kind of a farm you wanted? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, we knew, I think we had a better sense of what we didn't want to do than what we did want to do. We knew that we didn't have this... We live in an area where there are just extraordinary vegetable farmers, really, really highly skilled folks operating on really beautiful soils and producing incredible vegetables for the farmer's market and various CSAs. And we knew that we didn't have that skill set. And since we wanted to stay out here in Caroline and not go to the other side of uh, the lake, uh, Ithaca is at the southern end of Cayuga Lake, and if you go to the west side of Ithaca, the soils tend to be much better than where we are. And we knew that we didn't want to do that. So what we were faced with was rocky, shallow, steep land, you know, shallow soils, uh, poorly drained soils. And that was fine with us because we had the sense from the beginning that we most likely wanted to raise animals. And that came from my training in holistic management because even though holistic management ultimately is applicable to anybody, even if they're not farming, because it's about decision-making. Its roots are in the use of uh, specifically cattle, but livestock in general, to restore degraded land. Um, And so that really captured my imagination when we started learning about, um, you know, more, it's, it's really critical in areas where desertification is a problem, which obviously isn't really the Northeast, Um, that cattle can be managed in a certain way to restore creeks that have gone dry and to build topsoil and to reduce bare ground and erosion. Um, But even here in the Northeast, where we don't have the problem of desertification, I still think that there's a really low bar for what is considered good quality soil or good land management. And we were really interested in how how can we manage the land in such a way that it really improves the land and raises the organic matter dramatically in a relatively short period of time and produces incredibly healthy animals and good quality meats, almost as a byproduct of that land management process. So we're... And so what does that mean in terms of your business? Um, well, it means that, you know, you have to find a way. Where profit, financial profit is only one aspect of our business model, Um, You know, we consider biological profit and social profit in terms of our community networks and loyal customers and things like that uh, as almost equally important. But the farm needs to be profitable 
because ultimately I want to be full-time on the farm. I'm still half-time with Cornell right now. Um, and so, you know, even though we say that we want the meat to just be a byproduct of our good land management, the, that meat still has to generate the profit that will keep the farm functioning long-term. So we are looking at really um, most likely a meat CSA model. I mean, right now we're still so small-scale that we sell retail to uh, a little neighborhood grocery store called the Brookton Market that's just two miles down the road from us. They sell our pork. And then we have a listserv with around 100 people or so, and we sell out, we raised 300 chickens this year, 100 turkeys, and then I have four beehives that will produce a few hundred pounds of honey a year. And, um, and we sell out everything just through those two market channels. But ultimately we want Hello? to scale up and have a meat CSA and put, potentially partner with other farmers so that it could be a, you know, an almost full diet CSA with just about everything coming from the Brooktondale area. So highly collaborative uh, and multidimensional and many different kinds of poop. Yes. <laughs> and what is the shelter belt part? Where'd the name come from? Yeah. Um, well, when I look at our land, we don't have forest, but we have lots of trees. And the trees on our property, we have this big rolling west-facing slope, and the trees tend to be arranged in uh, kind of belts, really. And then we have this wicked wind because we're up here on a hill, this wicked wind that comes through. And so when we first bought the property and spent a lot of time walking around it and thinking about the future, um, one of the first things we wanted to do was to plant some trees that would form a windbreak so that we could have animals out on pasture throughout the winter and not need to have them in a barn. And as I was researching windbreaks, I saw something that said windbreaks, a.k.a. shelter belts. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a cool name. I like the way it rolled off my tongue. And then I, I searched for Shelter Belt Farm to see if anybody had already used that name, and, and I didn't find anyone. And then ultimately, uh, as a business, the, what it came down to was the fact that the, the URL, shelterbeltfarm.com, was available. So we didn't have to be, you know, shelterbeltfarm.info or shelterbeltfarm.biz or shelterbeltithica or anything like that. We could just have the, the basic URL. <laughs> That's as good a reason as any. <laughs> and did, yeah. you, did you go ahead and plant more trees, or did you think that the trees that were already there were, had been planted by previous farmers? Or um, we will, I think, we'll be able to use the trees that are already here for some shelter. But they're, the way that the trees are arranged on the property is that it doesn't block out the source of the strongest winter winds. And so we did the very first thing that we did. Um, I think we had, we had owned the property for a year. We wanted to spend the first year just observing and not doing anything here. Um, and then the next spring, so I think it was spring of 2010, we planted about 125 trees. Um, and they should, I mean, they're still quite small, but eventually they should provide some good buffering from the north winds that come through in wintertime. Wow, that's amazing to spend a whole year just observing. It's a luxury that many people would not afford themselves. But you guys both have other jobs, and you're pretty stubbornly uh, 
visionary and your good planning. Well, That's amazing. That was also did an idea that... Did you learn something that... that you didn't expect to learn? I mean, was, did it end up being that you were like, wow, thank goodness we waited a year? Yeah, I was actually. I mean, it's hard. I, I can tell you I'm not a patient person at all. And all of this is taking entirely too long. <laughs> we have so many, we have so many visions and so many ideas of what we want this place to be. Um, and it's just because my husband runs his own business and I work off farm and we have two small children and so many other things going on, it, it all feels like it's um, happening entirely too slowly. So in a way, I look back and I think, oh my God, I can't believe that we took a whole year and did nothing. But it's not that we did nothing. It, I do think that that year was so critical because it allowed us to see um, how, I mean, it, it was a permaculture concept. So we, Craig and I both studied permaculture, um, which if anyone listening hasn't heard of that term before, it's um, basically an ecological design system. It's, it, it goes, it's very complementary with holistic management. Um, and so we had lived on a permaculture farm for a year in Washington State, and they really, the folks who we learned from there had really emphasized observation as being so critical to any planning process. So during that year, we walked on this land all the time, and we saw where the wet spots were, and we saw where the wind came from, and where the sun was in the summer, and where it set in the winter. Um, we saw what species of birds were already here. We actually talked to some neighbors who had been birding here for 30 years. Um, we saw where the deer trails were. It was we just we saw lots of things, and I'm sure there's still so much more that we missed, um, even in as often as we were here. And I feel like initially, when we bought the property, we had this idea of where we were going to put our home and our barn, and sort of our you know our our ground zero farm operation was going to be, and that completely changed after that first year. And we, we aren't, we put our house kind of nestled down a little bit further from the top of the hill. So we still have a really nice view of the valley and of the rest of our property, but it feels like we're kind of tucked in a little bit more. And I'm grateful that we took the time to make that change because there's a concept in permaculture of, um, uh, they call, I think they call them type one errors. And it's like the kinds of errors that are almost impossible to fix like so foundational that they would be really, really expensive or so time-consuming to fix them. And so part of our goal has been to avoid making type 1 errors. We know that we will make all kinds of other mistakes, but if we can avoid those that are impossible to fix, we'll be doing pretty well. It would be a good idea for our nation as well. <laughs> yes, right. Um, okay, so now this is wonderful, and I just wanted to make sure that we didn't miss out on another the other half of your hat um, and your work with the Beginning Farmer Program, which is uh, a leader in the nation in terms of uh, providing training, mentorship, guidance, resources for the important movement of young farmers who will uh, enter the field to take on this important career, and I thought maybe you could just summarize a little and explain a little bit what people can expect of that program um, and how to approach it. Um, yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for the kind words. Um, we, in general, um, 
So I'm I'm housed at the Cornell Small Farms Program, and it was oh six years ago or so that we decided to start a project specifically focused on beginning farmers. And initially, we were exclusively partnered with Cornell Cooperative Extension and exclusively focused on beginning farmers in New York. And what we were looking at was what are the gaps in information resources and trainings that are available for beginning farmers. And with the help of a team of extension educators, we we started offering an online course, which was really experimental at the time, to see, you know, people are used to going online to to uh, search for resources and information, but not necessarily to take a class and to learn about farming. It seemed a little counterintuitive at the time. Um, and we developed the Guide to Farming in New York, which is a, a really comprehensive compilation of fact sheets on everything from finding land, financing a farm, the regulations, the taxes, the um, marketing issues, where to get grants, organic certification, all that kind of stuff. Um, so those were, and, and we developed a website because what we were hearing from people was that there just wasn't any centralized place to go for guidance. Like there was heaps of information, but it wasn't organized and there was no one place to get it. And it was beginning farmers feel really overwhelmed. There's so many questions to answer. And so people were looking for something that could help them in the decision-making process when getting started with farming. And so we actually created some tutorials on our website that kind of led people through the initial thinking and planning processes of um, similar to holistic management, really like assessing what they have to work with, what their skill set is, what it is that they want, why are the, what's their motivation for getting into farming, what are they trying to create, um, and then start using that as their foundation for making decisions moving forward. And um, the program grew over time. We were lucky to get funding from the USDA's Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program in 2009. And now that one experimental online course that we started with all those years ago has grown into a menu of about 13, I think we're up to now, 13 online courses. Um, and so that's the main, that's probably the main avenue that we have for working directly with beginning farmers all over the country. And we've even had people from around the world sign up for those classes. And the classes, there's some that are planning oriented. There's really beginner level BF 101 that's like starting from square one that covers the basic planning. And then there's a more advanced one that helps you write a business plan. And then there's production-oriented courses, berry production, poultry, vegetables, um, and pretty much everything in between. So, um, so that's, the, that's actually the main thing that I do right now is manage those online courses, and I'll be teaching the BF 101 course that's starting in another couple of weeks. And we still have our website at nebeginningfarmers.org that provides tutorials. Um, we've done some amazing videos. We worked with a really talented videographer uh, here in Ithaca, and we were seeing that you could go on YouTube and you could find farming videos, you know, if you were looking for something specific like how to process chickens or whatever, but you could never be sure. I mean, a lot of the videos weren't high quality and um, really kind of spotty information, and you couldn't necessarily be sure of the source unless it came from a, a source that you trusted. Um, so we worked with this videographer to go out to some local farms, and he spent so much time there that he's become good friends with a lot of the farmers. And he documented their production practices and then produced these how-to videos, everything from how to castrate pigs to um, 
you know, how to raise vegetables, but he did it in such a way that you could see how this one particular farm, Kingbird Farm in Berkshire, New York, um, they're certified organic and they raise livestock and herbs. And he produced like four clips that show from start to finish how they raise pigs on pasture. And it covers every aspect of the, the farrowing and the breeding and notching the piglets' ears and castrating them and raising them up on the pasture and what infrastructure they use and all of that stuff. So um, I feel like that's a really great tool for beginning farmers as well, and I've certainly learned a lot from the videos to inform my farm practices. And then we, we started coordinating a network. We felt like there wasn't enough interaction and opportunities for learning among all the organizations in the Northeast that serve beginning farmers, and so another big part of our work that's not necessarily directly um, impacting beginning farmers, but indirectly, is to create this beginning farmer learning network where we have all of the organizations that we've identified come together once a year, and we bring in speakers and um, oh, we bring in speakers and uh, and offer you know workshops and discussions on topics that they've identified as important to them. And I've been to the, those network meetings, and they're wonderful. Um, and this is obviously a, a growing field of beginning farmer service providers uh, in identifying opportunities and challenges and common frustrations and places where uh, policies or programs would, would be of use and just getting a sense of the field uh, of opportunity is a huge service. And, uh, you know, I was just one with Joe Morris from Morris Ranch, and he said two heads are better than one. And, yeah. you know, it's that kind of collaborative, collaborative, mission-driven uh, community that really starts to be able to serve as overstretched as we all are. It helps start, start filling in the gaps of knowledge. And, you know, you say, oh, I know somebody who will know the answer to that question. Anyway, I think that the network part is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a really dynamic group of folks. And... Um... I mean, the disappointing part is that we didn't get renewed with our USDA funding um, this past year. So um, we're pretty committed, though, to keeping that network alive. It, at, a, at a minimum, we at least have a listserv where people within the network can share information or ask, you know, questions of each other. And um, so we can at least keep that going, but we are going to try to keep the group meeting once a year. So we're, we're going to be meeting December 3rd in the Albany area this year and see if we can do that without having external funding to support the meeting because we do think there's no other forum really for all these organizations that serve beginning farmers to, to learn from each other and to network. Well, and if we can survive without funding, then, then it makes us just all the more stronger, all the exactly. more resilient. Yep. If people value it enough to show up without getting paid, uh, that shows you how critical it is. Right. Um, okay, well, I don't want to get too high and moral, but uh, I want to make sure to remember, thank Miss Erica Fernay, and you can find her on the website of New England, New England Beginning Farmers, or sorry, Northeast, so that's nebeginningfarmers.org. Um, and also to remind you and to remind Erica that the next Farm Hack event is happening in Ithaca. And mm -hmm. obviously, uh, FarmHack is a network of farmers, engineers, and others working together to design, develop, and build tools for resilient agriculture. 
we just had an amazing uh, presentation of Farm Hack down at the Maker Fair in New York City um, and a very wonderful event in uh, Iowa. So we're building on good momentum. Uh, we won the editor's prize, two blue ribbons and two red ribbons at the fair, and literally gave out um, 600 postcards uh, over the course of two days. And this next farm hack will be about small grains processing, and it's hosted by Cayuga Organics, Nofa New York, uh, Groundswell, Greenhorns, and the National Young Farmers Coalition. So, again, a very networked uh, set of organizations working together. And if you're interested in small grains, it's part of a rotation uh, in terms of farm self-sufficiency for feed, for, for artisan baking, whatever you are interested in grains for, you're probably also interested in equipment. Uh, so this will be an amazing opportunity to connect with uh, farmer-driven cooperatives, uh, specifically focused on low-cost and uh, antique and, you know, cobbling it together uh, for small grains. And uh, so that's on the 20th of October. There's so many other events coming up. It'd be a lot to say them all, but I hope you'll check out the list uh, and join the mailing list of Greenhorns so that you get the gentle reminders once a month. Um, I think that's all for the day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Severin. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.